So um, every once in a while, we'll, we'll play a video or a type of video uh, here at church that goes out on the street and interviews people as far as, hey, if there's a heaven, are you going there and why? And a lot of times the answers are the same, which is, yeah, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person and I've never murdered and I don't lie and I don't do these things. And, and typically when they're reflecting on that, they're, they kind of go to the Ten Commandments, right? They measure themselves against that particular code. Now, often they don't even know all ten. They know like four and a half, right? But they go to that and they kind of say, see, I don't break the Ten Commandments. But one of the things you're never going to see in one of these videos is a person say, I'm good and I measure myself against the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's just never going to happen. And there's a substantial reason for that. And that is that the Sermon on the Mount does what the Ten Commandments do not do. It drives right to the inner core of the person. I mean, right to your thoughts, right to your impulses, right to your emotions, right to the things that nobody can see. And that is the drag of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Because again, we like to put up a front. We like to have a facade. We like to make sure like we have it together, or at least people assume that. But then what the Sermon on the Mount says is, no, 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 no. I'm paying attention as your God. I'm paying attention to what you daydream about. I'm paying attention to what you wish you could do if you would never get caught. I'm paying attention to the words that rattle around in your mind when you see that person you don't like. He says, every emotion you have, every impulse that goes through you, everything you continue to cherish, to stir up inside, Jesus says, man, we're watching that too. And see, that changes the whole playing field when it comes to, am I a pretty good person? See, because the reality is for many of us, if not all of us, we have a few areas of baggage. In fact, I think we have a picture that shows just some simple crates. And those simple crates are going to be some things that happen over the course of our lives. There are going to be some things that are maybe scandalous or big mistakes. Maybe only a few people know about them. Maybe many people know about them. But we have that kind of baggage in life. If measured against the law, if measured against the Ten Commandments, you say, yeah, some of those I've done and it's been public and it's been known. But then the Sermon on the Mount looks at you from a different perspective. It's the next picture. That is the warehouse in Indiana Jones. All right. That is what's inside of us. All right. All these things left undone in the external, but true to the internal. We are warehouses of folly, of sin, of anger, of lust. We have ugly minds at times. We have manipulating personalities. It's just we don't always act on that. But it's true to our nature to have these impulses and desires and this broken thing. It just stays all locked away. But it's to this that Jesus now drives the manifesto, right? He takes it to this new level. So he can begin to do work on us, to work it out in us. Now, as we've been saying throughout the series, the Sermon on the Mount is not just some pithy anecdotal statements of spirituality that we go, man, that is so great. That should really be stitched on something and hung on my wall. While that's fine and delightful and nice, man, it is not a pleasant ride through this particular sermon. In fact, back in 1958, C.S. Lewis was critiqued. Uh, for a number of reasons, by a fellow uh, theologian and scholar. And one of the things this man critiqued Lewis on 
is he says, you know what? You don't like the Sermon on the Mount. You don't ever write about the Sermon on the Mount. You don't care for it. And so Lewis, in a public response, said this. He said, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for the Sermon on the Mount. He says, who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. You don't mess with Lewis, man. He's got a lion. You don't mess with a dude with a lion, you know? I mean, brilliant though. Brilliant. It's so true. Right? The Sermon on the Mount is designed to be like a boot camp for our lives. By boot camp, I mean it does two fundamental things. First off, you go to boot camp and their job is to break you. They want to break you down. They want to get rid of all of the preconceived notions of softness and simplicity in life. They want to break you. And then once you're broken, they can build you. Boot camp is dualistic. And so is the Sermon on the Mount. It breaks... So that once broken, Jesus can build kingdom people. And so that's the motivation. We're going to look first at the breakdown, and then we'll get into the building up here in a few minutes. So we start with breakdown. If you have your Bible or a Bible app, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're starting in verse 17 as we look at the standard weights and measures that Jesus reflects on as he gets into this particular part of the sermon. So Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 17. This is where he kicks off. He's just said, hey man, you're salt, you're light, let them see your good works, glorify God in heaven, all that good stuff. Then he says in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not anything will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, this was going to be very reassuring to the critics around Jesus at this time because they thought he was anti-law. And he's not anti-law, he's just anti-religious. He doesn't like what they've taken the law to be or to mean or to do. So he comes against that. But Jesus is pro-law. He's pro-613 laws. He's also pro-prophets. The prophets had hundreds of other admonitions to the people as far as how to live and what to do and how to think and what to to be to the surrounding world. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in the Bible that Jesus says, man, I am behind that 100%. I've come to fulfill that, and we'll see what that means in a minute. But then Jesus goes a step deeper. And this is where people's hands begin to get a little sweaty because then he says in verse 19, therefore, after saying, man, I am pro the law, says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Boom, shakalaka. I mean, that's like, he, he, all of a sudden, he jumps, man. You got the Pharisees going, that's right, follow the law, follow the law, man, follow the law. And then he goes, worse than that. See, those guys that follow the law so well, you have to exceed their righteousness. I mean, that's some big stuff. I mean, understand, we read the Bible today in the 21st century. We read about Pharisees, and we go, man, those guys were punks. They are. They're punks, they're jerks, they're nards, they're dopes, they're all those things. 
but they're very obedient jerks, nards, punks, and dopes, all right? In other words, they were awesome at laws. Not only at the 613 Old Testament laws and the other hundreds of prophetic laws, they started creating all their own laws. I bring this out every once in a while because this is like the Jewish phone book of law right here. Right? I mean, when you were a little Jewish boy in the first century, and it was like Thanksgiving, this was the booster you sat on, man. I mean, right? No phone book. We're going to get the mission off. That'll pump you up at least a good couple of inches, right? And so the, the Jewish people meant, this is what you were supposed to do. All this stuff. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they memorized it. They knew it. They did it. They lived it. And so Jesus was looking at the masses and looking at his apostles, and then he looks at the Pharisees and says, see those guys? You guys have to be better than that. Your righteousness has to blow their righteousness out of the water. And if your righteousness doesn't, you are not going to inherit the kingdom. Period. I mean, those words suddenly mess with us because we're used to seeing Jesus as this guy that comes in and says, ah, law's over. Instead, he rolls in and says, no, law's very alive, very active, and you have to do it better. That doesn't sound like the familiar, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That sounds like, wow. It sounds like, how, 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 do, how do I measure up? Because that's 613 plus hundreds more, plus the application of hundreds. I mean, man, I, I don't know what to do. And then Jesus is going to take that statement and build on it just a little bit more. He's going to give 26 verses that change everything. 26 verses that suddenly will put a weight so great on the listener, it just crushes them. And those 26 verses have an anthem song. And Jesus had a very cool anthem song. You've probably heard it. You ready? I like big butts and I cannot lie. Right? So, this is his anthem song. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You apostles, you can't deny. Oh, I won't do it. All right. So, anyway, when the king rolls in with me, no, I won't. Okay. So, um, do it. Do it. Yeah, it would be the whitest thing that's ever happened here. All right. Everybody would come with saltine crackers next week. It would be so white. So, I will not do it. So, it's that bad. But that is his theme song. He likes big butts. And he drops six big butts butts in this section. So I'm going to run through these as fast as we can so you see what he says, right? Because he says, hey, man, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill the law right down to the very jot and tittle. And then on top of that, you have to be more righteous than the most righteous people you know. Now here's what I mean by righteous. Verse 21, you've heard it. It was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But, big but, I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's a big but. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already done it in his heart. Verse 31, it was also said whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's a big but. Verse 33, again, you've heard it, it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. 
You have heard it was said of old, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. You heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. I like big butts and I cannot lie, right? He loves dropping some big butts into the equation. And with that, he paints the picture of here's true righteousness. And it's just six things. It's just six statements. And I really believe Jesus could have went all day long. He could have kept just rolling. You know, you heard it was said, honor your father and mother, but now I say to you that when their back is turned, don't do the angry dance. Don't do that. Don't do the tongue when their back is turned down. Right? You heard it was said, do not covet, but I say to you, love the fact that your neighbor's got that brand new 2,000 square inch grill with Wi-Fi, 47 inch screen TV, built in cake. Love that for them. Oh, I'd rather covet. I mean, Jesus could have just, just walked through all 613 laws, had a giant list, but he doesn't need to do that. He goes through six. Here's one, here's one, here's one, here's one. And he says, hey, you know what, let me wrap it up for you. Just be perfect. As your father is perfect. That's, that's simple. I, you know, six. Eh, I could go eight or ten. Just be perfect. That's what I'm getting at. And, and, and so we, we, we look at this and we go, so let me get this straight. If I, I'm going to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and gets me into the kingdom, I need to not only be all of those things, but I need to be perfect. And Jesus would say, yeah, this is part of what the Sermon on the Mount is designed to teach. And, and, and he would say, and if you're not... If you're not that righteous and you're not that perfect, you're kind of up Scat Creek without a poodoo paddle. That's your problem now. Right? You're busted. And so it leaves this thud. It's like this bomb that drops right there in everybody's lap. Because in short, just break down what he said. He says, do the law to the dotted I and cross T. Just do the law. He says, exceed the righteousness of the strictest religious leaders. Obey fully in attitude and actions, commands that require sacrifice, humility, and mistreatment. Just be perfect, just like God. See, as a hearer of that, wanting to know, how do I get saved? How do I go to heaven? How am I right with God? I'm going to listen to that and go, you know what? I can't. I absolutely can't do that. It is impossible for me to accomplish that goal. And Jesus is going to say, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Thank you for getting it. You can't. I can't. No matter how moral, good, perfect, obedient, thoughtful, I think I am, I'm not enough. For God to go, hey, you're good. Buddy Jesus, come on in. Just not enough. See, we need to be broken down. We need to have this acknowledgement of our lack of sufficiency our lack of capability to say, here's my book of good deeds. Because he would say, well, let's, let's weigh that book. We're going to start with how you felt, what you ever thought, how you responded internally before you responded externally. We're going to weigh it there. And we go, no, 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 that's not what I meant. What I meant was my externals. Well, this is the problem. See, what this is designed to do is actually something that Jesus has already talked about in the sermon. He really starts the sermon off at this place. Who's blessed? Poor in spirit. If if we want to be on the right track, the very first thing we do is we hear God's standard and we go, I I, I can't do that. 
I, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I am incapable. I, 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 I will ne- I'm just a sinful person. And he says, yeah, that, that's what you first have to acknowledge. You're poor in spirit. Happier the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. A, a sense of promise exists for those who are poor in spirit because they see I have need. I can't do this. From there, he says, blessed are those who mourn. You say, I'm poor, I can't do it. I see my sin and it grieves me. I see the sins of others and it grieves me. I'm not one of these hotheads and I look at everybody else that's stupid and I'm great. No, I realize I'm stupid, we're all stupid. We need salvation, we need grace. And so I mourn. From that, there's a sense of meekness, which is it's not about me asserting my own rights and my own privileges and my own agenda, but rather I realize that I let God assert all things for me. I'm I'm meek. And then from that, I hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness that God can give so that I can then live out that righteousness. See, the Beatitudes are really a mirror of the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and what comes out of that gospel, which is Christian living. They just pattern that. And so Jesus has already set it up. Man, you can't do it. You know you can't do it. So poor, mourn meek, hunger and thirst. The good news, Jesus has accomplished it all. All of it. In fact, first we see that Jesus fulfilled the law that we couldn't. See, the law has to be obeyed 100% to be saved. The good news is Jesus did it for us so we don't have to. It's not possible for us to do it anyway, but he accomplished that. And Jesus suffered the hell we earned. So, man, we've loaded up our whole Indiana Jones warehouse full of stuff. And Jesus burned that warehouse to the ground in his own body. So it doesn't count against you. Then, on that, Jesus grants the righteousness we need. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might have the righteousness of God in him. And because of that, then, looking at your text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, take on a whole different thing. In fact, Romans 10, 4 says it this way, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, you look at that and Jesus says, I promise not one bit it's going to pass until all's fulfilled. Good news. On the cross and through his resurrection, it's all fulfilled. It's all fulfilled. You don't have to do law. Jesus did law for you. For me. And died for the sins of all of my law violations. And gave me that righteousness. And so I don't have to be a law doer anymore. None of us do. That's the point, because we could never do it anyway. Only he could do it for us. So he does all of that so we can face the calling of his kingdom as new creations. New creations, right? So we have these new hearts and new lives on a new journey with a new spirit, new values. And as much as things like poverty of spirit and mourning and meekness and hungering for righteousness bring us into that salvation, well, then the other beatitudes begin to flow out of that. So as we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, as we are pursuing what it means to be salt and light, we start to live in a certain spirit. We hunger all the time to be what God wants us to be, to comply with what God has designed for our good and His glory. Not as laws so we get God's love and approval, but as these acts of worship and obedience because we're so enamored by our God. That's the idea behind doing the Sermon on the Mount. I am broken, I love you, you've saved me, so I seek to pursue you in these ways. I call this our hunger games. But we don't have a chick with a bow and arrow, that's the only difference, right? So, 
we just have games of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And it flows out in certain dispositions, certain hearts. The first is to be merciful. Right? Remember Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Well, if we've been led to Christ and hungering for his righteousness, we'll start to be merciful. And one of the ways we display mercy is in verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, each of us in our external lives are different paste bacani sauce lids. All right. Um, Some of you are greens, some of you are yellows, and some of you are reds. All right. But internally, we all seem to get to red somehow. You may not on the outside. In fact, I've learned over the course of time that the ones that look all green on the outside, like, oh, it's fine, it's fine. Oh, they're red on the inside. You know what I mean? Like, the ones that are red on the outside, they're like yellow on the inside. They just, that's it, you know? But, but man, we all are going to have a struggle with anger. And what's interesting to me about this is that Jesus starts with the most serious sin. See, it it may not be what we call the most scandalous. The more more scandalous ones may come later. But this one's the most serious because this one creates the most problems. Right? Whether it be marital problems, parental problems, life problems, boss problems, whatever. Anger, a lot of times, is the source of all conflict. So Jesus starts at that source point of conflict. And first he says, man, you've got to really realize what's going on in the internal, the, the angry elements, right? This idea of anger, this word that's used, is that idea of stoking the fire. You keep stoking it. Listen, not all anger is sin, but most of our anger is. I mean, honestly, you know, as soon as people, there's righteous anger, I go, yes, there is. I've almost never had it. Right? I've had anger that I want to justify. I call it righteous because they suck. But that's not, that's not righteous anger. Right? It, often it's not. It's I'm offended. I'm ang- it's about me being mad at them. As opposed to really being mad because God's mad. Right? So most anger is probably sin. And so that first level is just that internal resentment. I start to characterize people a certain way. I'm a bit embittered. I've got bad thoughts. Um, you know, I just, I'm kind of either brooding over them or I've, I've kind of cut them off in my mind. I'm done with them. Finished. That's that first layer. That second layer is where then it goes from internal anger to external insults. Right? And so you, you see that in the text, right? Insults his brother. An insult is basically saying, hey, just so you know, I hate you. You may go, no, 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 no it's not nice to hate. Yep. Mm-hmm. But let's be honest. We all have moments where there's somebody we've hated. And I know mom always said, it's a strong word, don't use it. Whatever. Right? If you're not doing good to them, you don't like them. If you don't like them, you probably hate them. Or you want to make yourself feel better by saying, no, I don't hate. I just dislike with passion. All right, whatever. <laughs> Strong disregard. Hate. But that's what you want to do. So it goes from the internal anger to the external, I hate you. And eventually it turns to the eternal. Because when it says there, you fool, what that literally means is go to hell. See, in the Hebrew mind, if you called somebody a fool, what you were saying is they were estranged from God's glory. They weren't a part of the community. A fool was going to hell. 
right? So this is why the Bible actually does use the word fool in good ways as far as to admonish, and it's not violating the standard of Scripture here. The idea here is literally that idea. It says, you know, I, if there's a heaven and a hell, I don't want you in heaven. I want you to suffer. I want you to suffer. You've hurt me so bad. I want you to suffer if given the option. If I could choose your destiny, I know what I would choose for you. That's some intense anger. Where we get to that point where we don't weep over the sins of others, we just brood over them. Where we don't want reconciliation, we just want revenge. Right? And, and this is what Jesus is warning us about. And the temptation for us to be angry and act on our anger is very high as human beings. Very high. Because somebody is going to rub us wrong this week, this year. Somebody's going to do something that offends you at some level. And then you're going to have to figure out, what do I do with the offense? For some of us, we're going to gossip about them. For some of us, we're going to slander. And there's all sorts of mediums in which we can do that nowadays. Isn't that awesome? We can tweet it and text it and Facebook it and email it out. Man, this is so sweet. Right? We're going to get into these great email wars with other people and we're going to get everything off our chest. That never goes well. But we're going to do some of that because we're angry. We're going to be down at match with some friends hanging out. And we're going to start talking about that person that's wronged us. And I know we're all unbiased judges when we do that. I get it, right? There's going to be things that even people, you don't even know. You know the scene. You're on the 520. You're merging onto the 5. You need to get to the Mercer exit, right? You know this one, right? It is the middle finger fest. That's, that's what that is, right? People, you don't even know. They're not letting you in. It's that guy, and he's just not letting you in. He's like, no, you're not going to get in. You're not going to get in. And then you start going through, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna, you go, the, look, mom, no hands. You do that one. You do, you do like the, the start the mower one. You do the, you know, whatever it is. You know, get really angry with the window. You can't do that anymore now. And then you do the, you know. But still, right? You're just angry. Sunroof, bam, right there, right? Angry. I don't do that, but I know people that do. All right, so. Um, <laughs> row six, seat four. All right, so. Um, I have no clue who that is. All right. Probably sorry going, I did that the other day. All right, so, but we have opportunities and we act on our anger. So, so Jesus gets our attention. Maybe it's not that stuff. Maybe it's stuff that's closer to home, i.e. home. Home has all kinds of potential for anger, right? Husbands and wives, sure, you never get angry at each other. Ever, Right? I mean, we're even wired so different for those fights. I mean, some of you guys, you have to admit, you've patched a hole or two in your life, in your home. Because you got angry. Some of you wives, you admit, you've become a human catapult. Right? Throw a spatula, keys, TV remote, a Bible, you know? Um, pillow, like that does a lot of damage, you know? Um, you know, and, and, and when husbands and wives fight, man, I mean, we fight in such weird ways. Like women, I, I say this, God bless you, don't kill me. But um, you're like Gatlin guns in an argument. You, it's like, it, honestly, like you're like Gatlin. It's like you're Nancy Grace and we're Gomer Pyle, right? So it's like you're just... And we're just... Right? And so... And then guys, finally, they're just like a cannon, right? So you're... And they fight, boom! 
right? Right? And the boom half the time isn't even, like, understandable. You know what I mean? Like, ah! you know? It's like, I don't know. I think he said something about his dad. I don't know, you know? So, man, it's there. And so we have anger in the home. If you're raising kids, you'll see anger. You have an argument with your teenager, somebody's getting hated by the end of that. Somebody's hating. Usually the kid makes it real simple. I hate you! And like three seconds later, you hate me! You've always hated me! Like everybody's hated. Right? And I don't even know why. Like, I hate you! You hate me! I got hair coming out of my armpits! I don't understand! You know, like... Right? I mean, it's just that way. So it's true to our nature. This is our problem. And so when Jesus steps in and says, Man... You got to be aware of this. He, he's not kidding around. And, and with it, man, it's, it's going to be hard to deal with anger, whether it be at your spouse or your kids or your boss or your coworkers or your neighbors or a friend that's estranged, whatever it is. But Jesus says you have to address it. You have to deal with it. And so as he does this, he gives two illustrative points on this. The first is he says in verse 23, so if uh, you are offending, or if you're offering rather, Give your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother. He says, and if you remember that he has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be first reconciled to your brother, and then come and give your offering. you got to imagine, here it is, this person, Jesus preaches this in Galilee. A person comes all the way to Jerusalem to give their sin offering, and it's there they go, oh man. I remember there was that guy that, that, that owns that fishing net place, and, and I wronged him. And I blew it off. And I need to leave this here, go make that right, and then come back and give that. That's a 160 miles round trip. I mean, this is no small thing, right? It's not the days of texting and email and Facebook and having a car and a paved road and Skype and all the options we have to connect with somebody maybe we've wronged. No, this was a massive inconvenience. This was going to cost you money. This was going to be a hassle. And it would be really tempting to do there what is tempting for us today, which is, you know what, I'll just do the ceremony anyway, and I won't worry about the integrity of going to them. Because again, the ceremony in part is to say, God, forgive me that I've done some dumb stuff. So it would be really easy just to give the sin offering. Here was my sin, that guy, I handled him wrong, but I'm already here. Jesus says, no, man, you want to go. You want to deal with it as quick as you can. Go be reconciled. Don't wait. That's the thing. Sometimes we wait, and our pride even, we wait. Well, if I go, I have to admit I did something wrong, and I'm not really ready to do that. So Jesus, will you just forgive me because I don't want to tell them yet, right? So, no, you, you have to go. Maybe you were the one wrong. So you go, I'm offended. And I'm not going to them until they realize, well, you know what? Their head may be firmly planted in the sand. And they'll have no idea. You're so offended. So you need to be the bigger person that goes and says, you know what? This happened. I was hurt. Can we, can we address this? Can we make this right? Don't delay. He goes on to another example of going to court. He says, don't wait around until lawyers get involved and the judge is there on the, the, the bench and you have this giant problem that escalates. The longer you leave unresolved relational issues, the bigger it grows. It just escalates. And so his point is, man, you want to deal with it quick. And as you do this, here's the best piece of advice I can give you. As you go to address this with people, 
Uh, if there's some, either you've wronged them or they've wronged you, but you're the one that's being proactive, uh, you need to go as a servant, as a peacemaker, and as a diplomat. This is not this opportunity that says, all right, I'm going to basically go Trojan horse. Hey, we need to talk. You kind of hurt me. Bam, right? Your mission is not to make a point, but to make a friend. All right? And sometimes people go into these things going, I need to get this all off my chest. And by that, they mean it's another chance to hurt. And if your motivation is just to hurt or to just get it off your chest, then you're falling short. Right? Our motive has to be, I want to make this right. I want to be unified with you. That's the heart of the kingdom. And so Jesus says, man, if you want hunger and thirst for righteousness in this new life, first and foremost, be merciful. Be merciful to those that have wronged you. Be merciful to those whom you have wronged. Make it right. Go quick. Don't delay. And man... The kingdom is shown. Another thing that Jesus says as he continues into these Beatitudes is another area that's very sensitive. He says we are to be pure in heart, which is verse 8 in the Beatitudes. Not only to be merciful, we're to be pure in heart. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I have to say up front, all married people have violated this without exception. Wow, that's uncomfortable. Now, what I don't want you to do is go home and say, so honey, where have you violated that exactly? I don't want you to do that. It's not going to go well for you at all. Right? But all married people have. Here's why. First, the word lust, epithumio. Uh, it can mean desired, wished for, lusted for, like we understand the word. It can mean all those kinds of things. But what it entails is in there a disposition. The disposition can be emotional. It can be mental. It can be physical. All those things are true. It can come in degrees. Where maybe you're just disillusioned with your spouse or discontent or dissatisfied. Maybe you're desiring another. Maybe you've already had an affair. You're having one now. Whatever it is. All of that classifies as falling under this offense. And husbands and wives alike have at some point fallen into this. Just in different ways, right? I mean, men, it's a little bit more obvious. Men are visual and uh, they are, um, they, they notice bodies. Unfortunately, men, we have the interwebbies and there's some dirty water to surf there. So that's a challenge, right? All that stuff can be uh, a reality. Uh, some travel on business that creates all kinds of temptation. Sometimes the family leaves town that creates all kinds of temptation in all sorts of ways. But see, this is also true for uh, things like emotion for men. In other words, we typically think, well, men struggle with this mostly on the visual sexual side. Now, sometimes as men, our struggle is going to be uh, that woman seems more interested in me just personally than my spouse. They're kinder than my spouse. They're more fun than my spouse. They're lighthearted. My spouse is always pent up. And, and they just seem like, boy, if I was married to somebody like that, that would be so much better. You know, go ahead and marry that, and you'll find they're just like your wife. Right? Because she's stuck with you. Right? So, it, it's a symbiotic relationship. Right? You, you start to realize it's all the same for everybody. And for wives, too, there are a different slew of temptations that exist out there in the world. I call it chick porn. There's chick porn. 
Chick porn is things like Twilight. That's chick porn to me. Um, Boo it all you want. I'm standing behind this one. All right, so... um, this new book, Fifty Shades of Grey, how fascinating is that? If you haven't heard, you're blessed. If you have heard, watch out. So, um, but, but it's like uh, romance novels, The Notebook. We can't compete as guys with The Notebook, all right? So, um, you know, and so, and so there's all these things out there where you can go, man, I'm, I, I'm discontent, and if I had that, I'd be more content. I think of my, my friend's husband. He's a great, great guy. My guy isn't all that attentive, isn't all that focused, isn't all that with me. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's an old friend from high school that now you've gotten connected with on Facebook or emails or whatever. Because oh, he's he cares. He writes me three-page emails. Who reads that anyway? But he writes me three-page emails. And so there's this temptation, this this pull to lust. And it's dangerous. With teens. All kinds of challenges, man. We've got sexting, and we've got porn, and we've got all the expectations that get created for how a girl should look, how a guy should act, what they should both be, and it gets all messed up. And so Jesus shows us real grace by saying, man, be aware that this is an issue. The question is, well, how do we handle it? How do we address it? Verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body goes to hell. The solution is simple. And out in the foyer after service, we'll be handling everything you need for all your lusting needs. All right, so, no, that's not the solution. Well, it was for some guys in the early church, and that was bad. But that's not our solution. All right. Our solution, first, guard your eyes, guard your heart, guard your mind, guard your expectations, guard your passions, guard those, those daydreams you have of whatever isn't your spouse. Or, for our teens, your future spouse. Right? Guard. Second, cut out all the things that can stir up issues. Right? If you grow discontent with your husband because he's not romantic enough or not spontaneous enough or not whatever, and so you're kind of like, oh, I wish he was like this guy in this book. Team Edward, ugh, right? <laughs> Team Jacob, all right. Um, <laughs> put it away. Right? Put it away. If it's a relationship from an old friend on Facebook and you every time you, you check Facebook often to see if they left you something, stop. Just unfriend them. Just unfriend them. Done. Don't say, well, I just won't check. Unfriend them. Right? Whatever you need to do. If it's, I need to change jobs. I've totally gotten connected to somebody I work with, and I know it's really unhealthy. Change jobs. No, 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 but that's not practical. I have a mortgage and I have bills. Uh Uh-huh. What did Jesus say, though? He says, ah, cut it off. Cut it off. Deal with it. In fact, if anything, I would look at this and say, you know what? A a, a, A fair proof your marriage. A fair proof. For husbands, it means things real simple, like, you know what? Be attentive and be romantic. Just be attentive and be romantic. Just sit there and be like, I just want to listen to you, baby. I just want to listen. I'm just here to listen. Right? Oh, no, you keep talking. I just, oh, I love it when you talk. Just do that. Right? You're so awesome to listen to, right? So, Now you're like, oh, you ruined it, (laughs) okay? But do that. 
get some pregame action going on. You start mopping and dusting and vacuuming. Right? So, men, do that. And wives. I know, the wives are like, yeah, you do that. It's going to get real. All right, so... Wives, get amorous, get frisky. That's good. That's a good thing to do. We said that back in the Titus series. Build up your man, bake well, bed him often. Three things. Three things. That's it. Like, guys, we have to remember, like, 50 things to do well. I'm giving you the free three right here. It's worth the weight in gold. That's what it is. So... Now, now, in this, I, I know I've, I've done a lot of pastoral counseling stuff and everything else, and there can be a challenge in some of this uh, where people approach it kind of selfishly, right? And, and, and so I go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Husbands, your body is not your own. It's your wife's. And wives, your body's not your own. It's your husband's. And, and what Paul is communicating there is that we enter marriage to serve the other, And by serving the other, you love them the way they need to be loved, not the way you want to be loved. You love them as they need that. So husbands should look and say, how does my wife want to be loved? I'm just listening and I'm mopping. That's what I'm doing. Right? And the wife should go, well, how does my husband want to be loved? He wants a apple pie and me in the bedroom later. That's what he wants. All right? Um, Love him as he wants to be loved. As she wants to be loved. That's how it works. And, and, and I know, I mean, sometimes, you know, a woman will say, well, I don't really need sex. I don't need a mortgage. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> honestly, I'm like, since we're all putting on the table what we don't need right now. <laughs> you know? And, and guys, you know, husbands would be like, oh, I'm not really a talker or whatever, you know. And I'm like, well, don't worry. She says that about you and sex. So she doesn't like that. So, you know, these are things I've dealt with. So I'm just saying, not personally for crying out loud. <laughs> meant other people. All right. So you must invest. Or you will digress, right? That's very Johnny Cochran to me, I know. But invest or you will digress. And if anything, I would say in this, man, it's going back and looking and going, okay, well then, how do I really look at my marriage and look at all of my relationships, everything, through this lens of the next thing that Jesus deals with, with, which is the peacemaker. How do I serve? How do I create tranquility and peace and unity, joy in my world and existence? Jesus wants us to be peacemakers. And so he goes into another topic that's very sticky. He says in verse 31, he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These are some serious words. Jesus articulates them uh, very strictly. Um, and, and I know in this room that as soon as even that's heard or read, uh, emotions can come up. There can be spikes. There can be, oh, here it comes or whatever it is. Listen, I know there's a lot of complication around all of this. But I believe it's so critical for us to love the ideal that Jesus paints, to not let our own personal experience dilute what Jesus says. All right? To not let that happen. And so I, I look at this, and it was interesting. This week I was asked by somebody, they said, are you going to have any kind of public statement 
on the marriage referendum in Washington State, and, and I said, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I have no plans to make any public statement, any public statements, like the ones today that are going to be online, that's bad enough, all right? So, um, but, but, but I kind of commented to them, and I said, you know, it, it is interesting to me, though, because um, I am probably less concerned with an issue that God is not going to call marriage anyway, right? No matter what the state wants to call it, God doesn't call it that. But on top of that, there is this institution God does call marriage, and sadly, it's lost sanctity. And I have more concern over Christian people sanctifying their marriages than being concerned about what the definition of the sanctity of marriage is really all about. I'm like, man, God has defined marriage. We live in that. We should be the salt and light of what marriage is. We should. I mean, we talk about being salt and light. You want to be salt and light? Love your spouse. Celebrate your spouse. Hit on your spouse. Men, lust over your wife. That's good. Jesus gives you a big one of these if you lust over your wife. Big thumbs up. Right? You care for them. You nurture them. You talk with them. You listen. That is the sanctity of marriage. Just because you stay together but resent each other, there's nothing sanctimonious about that other than it's sanctimonious. Right? We're going to stay. Fill her high water. Right? We all win as kids. All right, so. No. Make the investment. Show the love. Bring the care, right? That's what Jesus is looking for. He says, you know, again, they had no fault divorce in their day, right? Just as, as we do in ours. And Jesus says, no, 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 but I, but I want you to f- focus on betterment, not just commitment, not, not just being done, but really making the investment. Now, does it always work out? No. And is there forgiveness? Yes. But Jesus, again, is, is pretty clear on where he lands. And it's all about making peace with the one that you said, I promise, I will love, honor, and cherish. Uh, when we make that promise, we don't make that promise conditionally. Uh, I talk about this a lot. We don't say, I promise to love, honor, and cherish if they maintain that side of the contract. Marriage really isn't a contract. Marriage is two people making vows to each other. It's not the same as a contract which says, if you break yours, I can break mine. That's not it. Or if I perceive you've broken them, I can break mine. No, I make a vow. I keep my vow. I keep my word, right? In fact, if you want to kind of get more into this, I think this week we're going to post a video from a message I did to Mark on divorce. I don't have the time to deal with all of it today. But we'll post that this week. Uh, And then you can go back and look at the Titus series on this too, and we dealt with it there. But the heart that Jesus is getting at is, man, be a peacemaker first in the foundation of society, marriage. That stems into the next thing, of which marriage is built on, which is keeping your word. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. He jumps into verse 37. Just let what your yes is to be yes, and your no is to be no. Anything more than that is of the evil one. Just stand behind what you say. It's funny, you realize, think about how often, like this week, start counting them. How many times somebody will say to you, uh, I honestly didn't know. I swear I'll get back to you. I promise I will bring it. You know why we say, I promise, I swear, uh, scout's honor, cross my heart? Because it's perceived that everybody's a liar. We almost feel the need to inject on top of it. Even silly things, you know. Honestly, I was thinking about the other day. Really, you would have been lying to me until you said, honestly, I was thinking about the other day? You know what I mean? Like, you need that? 
Now, we struggle with keeping our word. Everybody, you know, I've never met a person that says, you know what, I, I, I break my word a lot. Most people are like, oh, man, I have impeccable character. My, my shake is my bond. Da, 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 da. But we all have some point where we get behind the eight ball and we try to squeeze out of something or whatever. But Jesus says, man, just say yes or just say no. Get behind your words with your actions, with your attitude, with your disposition. Have a spirit of honesty and precision in your honesty. He says, that's kingdom stuff. That's being a peacemaker. He says there's another way to be a peacemaker. Verse 38, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with him. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Man, that's hard. I mean, you think about, first of all, the, the, the slaps you. See, to slap your right cheek, they're going to use their right hand in that culture, so it's a backhand. It's just designed to shame. And there's going to be people in our lives that just backhand us, right? I mean, they're going to slander us. They're going to gossip about us. They're going to cut us down to others. They're going to make it their job to make our life bad, whatever it is. It's going to be something we have to deal with. And yet, in that context, Jesus says, man, absorb it absorb it. It'd be really easy to say, fine, you want to go, let's go, I'm going to knock that tooth out of your face. We all have moments where we want to do something like that. There are many people in my life where I go, man, I would love to give you the right foot of fellowship. I would. I'd love to give you the headbutt of salvation and be done. I would. But I can't because this is what a peacemaker is. They absorb the insult. They absorb the attack. Jesus says also, if somebody would sue you, he says, man, don't get into the countersue just to countersue. Man, let the judge figure it out. That's it. But as soon as you get spiteful, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm coming back at you. He says, just absorb it. He says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear one mile, which was a Roman law, so a soldier could just drop his stuff and say, all right, Jewish guy, pick it up and go. And for one mile, you had to carry. But Jesus says something crazy. He says, you know what, carry it the second mile. And as you carry it the second mile, the attitude would be, you know what, do so with joy, do so with generosity. Because the best way to deal with a person that wants to disgrace you is to show them grace. Because they can't take that from you if you show it. They can never take grace if you display it. But as soon as you go, you know what, and you stop showing grace, they've won. Now they've made you their servant versus you chose to be a servant. Now, I'm not claiming that any of this is easy, not at all. But what I am saying is if you look at the history of the church, Rome was won off of that section right there. The gospel spread to the world because of that little chunk in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most pivotal moment in the Sermon on the Mount for what the early church did to win its world. Because they got the kingdom. In fact, Jesus takes it a step further. He says, you know what, just, just really when it comes down to it, be persecuted. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, the Old Testament never said you could hate your enemy. What the Old Testament said is love your neighbor and hate evil. But what people would do is say, well, I'm supposed to hate evil and my neighbor's evil and therefore I hate my neighbor and it's okay. And we kind of have the same problem today. We go, oh, we love the sinner but hate the sin. But sometimes it comes out like we really hate the sinner too. 
And go, I'm not really hating the sinner, I'm just hating their sin, but unfortunately their name is Matt and his address is, right? So, um, and, and so the, the trap is fallen into. But Jesus goes a step further, in fact, in Luke, he says, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Pray for, do good to, bless. These are really counterintuitive. And it's funny, as a pastor, I'm going to make a statement. I I hope it doesn't come across as self-seeking. I don't mean it this way. It's an experience I've had with many pastors that I know. Uh, The most persecuted person in America is the local church pastor. I mean, legitimately, what I mean by that is I can't think of another person in all of American culture that is consistently abused for his beliefs. So he'll preach something on Sunday, and here comes the emails. And he'll do something, and the family says, we hate you, we're leaving because you're totally unbiblical or whatever else. And, you know, like... I can't think of anybody that's more persecuted directly because of their walk with Christ than the local church pastor by local church people. And yet in that, you know what a local church pastor has to keep doing? Pray for, do good to, and bless. Sometimes that isn't always easy. I've had it really good. I'm at a church that I feel very loved in. I've got friends that are just beat to a pulp. And they have to keep going and keep loving and keep shepherding and keep caring. And they are a model to me of what this means. Because these people will attack their wife, their kids, their beliefs. And those guys have to keep loving. So thank you for the example. Because enemies can bring ugly out in all of us. And yet instead we pray, we do good, we bless. Why? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, people begin to see us love our enemies and give God the glory, right? Give God the credit. Goes on to say, he says, uh, man, what war do you have if you just love your friends? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than other people that are like Gentiles that do the same thing? Anybody can love their buddy. But see, we're not called to be just anybody. We're called to do that which the natural man struggles to do, which is to love in an uncommon way. Where we don't do bad, but we do good. Where we bless, where we pray. In fact, in verse 48, Jesus gives us the north star to navigate by. We're doing it all for God's glory, all for God's fame. But the north star is be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? We're never going to reach the north star. We're never going there. But we can navigate by it every single day. Be perfect as God is perfect. One day we'll be resurrected. That's when we're going to be perfect. Until then, we're not going to be perfect. But we aim for this standard, this heart in these things. In fact, I close with this. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter said it this way. He says, so think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come uh, when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. That's what you keep as your motive. He says, so you must live as God's obedient children. Do not slip back into your old way of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, both the reminder and the conviction that this brings and the freedom it brings when we live as your kingdom people. We praise you. We need you. We thank you. We are poor before you and ask you to work in your good name. Amen.